So good morning. This is Thursday, May 28th, 2020. This is Khadija Abdurrahman on Black Simon Radio. It's about 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm here with my co-host, Stanley Munoz. What's up, Stanley? What's up, what's up, Khadija? Um, and Ilan Mandel. Hey, Khadija. And today we're joined by Joshua Scannell, who's here from the New School. Um, he's an assistant professor of digital media theory. He's the author of This Is Not a Minority Report and Ruha Benjamin's edited collection, Captivating Technology. Um, he's interested in understanding how changing digital technologies transform the relationship between the body and its environment and how these transformations are harnessed to racial and sexual techniques of organizing populations for political and economic exploitation. How are you doing today, Josh? Hey, I'm good. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, especially I know you were telling me you just recently moved. Yeah, we yeah, we just recently moved. So no, but I'm really yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. And I'm glad that we actually, you know, got things put away enough that I've got a place to sit and, and talk to you all for a while. Yeah, so how I originally got introduced to your work was through um, Benjamin's edited collection. And in fact, I was live tweeting my reading of it. Um, <laughs> And rereading it for this show, it just, there was another layer in the context of COVID-19. And I'm thinking about the way in which you reference the biopolitic of managing populations in your book. But then there's this way that now we're talking about like the criminogenic landscape in terms of public health infection. And I was just wondering, kind of drawing on that essay, could you speak to the ways in which um, predictive policing and kind of management of the hood is something that's been happening and the ways in which you're seeing anything that's new or different uh, in this moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things that I tried to point out in that piece and that, you know, I, I learned from a lot of other people is that so much of, so much of what gets crystallized in programs like predictive policing, right. is actually just, you know, I saw the term math washing the other day, right? Math washing already ongoing practices of policing, you know, communities that are already over-policed. And so one of the things that, you know, one of the things that you keep, I have, I keep hearing in the middle of COVID-19 is how COVID-19 is, and I feel, I guess I should say, I feel like I hear this like every couple of years, right? That COVID-19 is like revealing the like depth of the inequality and the depth of like, um, you know, different ways in which, you know, communities are exposed to violence and premature death and vulnerability. And that this is a real wake up call. But, you know, that I, I always want to know for whom it's a wake up call, because we, you know, this has been known, right? There's in and what you get in some in the case of something like COVID nineteen, right, is is a heightening of already existing uh, systems of inequality and exploitation, and you know to use uh, Ruthie Gilmore's term, right, group differentiated vulnerability to uh, premature death. So, in terms of policing, right, you've got you know, the decision to use the NYPD to enforce the COVID-19 social distancing and all that had exactly the effect that everybody who pays any attention to this knew it was going to have, which is, you know, a a police agency that understands its mission almost exclusively in racially organized terms of, you know, civilization, civilizing through violence, right, is going to produce 
a violent and racially organized response to something, you know, a public health crisis. And in terms of the way that that's feeding into then, you know, digital infrastructures, one of the things that's, you know, you had Ollie Winston on right a few weeks ago, and he was talking about this, right, where you, you have this moment of crisis in which the expansion of surveillance power seems like it's natural and necessary, and something that you have to turn to in order to try to get some kind of control over what is basically an unpredictable and an uncontrollable uh, social situation. And all of that kind of power is all is going to get crystallized, right, in its reworking over time and how it's going to turn into a narrative of, you know, the epidemiology, the model of criminality and criminogenesis that is you know, epidemiological is going to become naturalized and normative, right? And you're already seeing that happen um, in a lot of debates and discussions around around how how this is falling out, um, including, you know, the the headline that's recurring over and over and over again now, which is, you know, the the one upshot of the of COVID nineteen is that it's, you know, crime rates are lower. Of course, that is only in you know, the, the idea that that is an upshot is the idea that that what that narrative means, right, is really up for contestation. And the idea that that is an upshot in the context in which 100,000 people have died, right, it speaks to the kind of the, to me, the madness of the framing narrative around crime, um, around crime and, and racial violence. Yeah, and it's just making me think. I mean, so so there's two questions. One is I've been kind of, you know, prior pre-plague, the kind of technology data policy world had been very loud about being, racial inclusion, fairness, and transparency, whatever the shortcomings are of those discourses. And I've been surprised by the level of silence, with the exception of uh, conversations around contact tracing which has both been a really um, outspoken conversation, rejecting that we shouldn't have a police state. This is an intrusion of our privacy. Um, Are there workaround technical solutions to reduce the risk of um, another Patriot Act where there's like a non-delimited set of policies that allow intrusion into people's personal rights to privacy? Um, But the thing to me that has been interesting is what is the imaginary that that conjures and what is the role of computer scientists or technologists in defining kind of what is the future? And thinking about Ali Winston, a lot of our conversation was around around Rikers Island. And what's fascinating to me there is that even though the Rikers Island population is at the lowest census that has been since World War II, um, it still has like skyrocketing rates of infection that are four times um, what we're seeing in the rest of New York City. And while it's not surprising that Governor Cuomo and New York City Mayor de Blasio do not care about the majority black and brown people who are incarcerated there. What I don't understand is that we are in the same geographic space. I mean, correctional officers are going to work there and going back into their communities. Um, People are cycling in and out of uh, Rikers Island. And so how do we understand this geography and this this manage, managing risk when people are relying on the same essential workers who live in the neighborhoods where they're disproportionately enforcing social distancing through violence? Right. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question. And I think there's a few different answers that are all kind of happening, you know, or at least I, I 
imagine that there are a few things that are all kind of happening at the same time here. One is which one in which one of which is that you've got in the case of in the case of the imaginary right of uh, folks who were locked up at Rikers and the correctional officers um, who are you know who are there who are working there. You've you've got this kind of doubling of that population as a the narrative around that population right is is the, the a presumed uh infectious population right so before covid-19 you know the the rhetoric around um the rhetoric around decarceration you know as limited as it was in rikers was also totally bound up in kind of digital surveillance, you know, the ubiquity of digital surveillance, right? So what will allow us to decarcerate Rikers, right, is our new capacity to monitor these, you know, these folks constantly, because without, with the idea, right, that, that people who had been incarcerated at Rikers could be free in public, right, to walk around or to, to be in public was, was, Cathected really to this, I this imaginary that they in and of themselves are vectors of violence, vectors of disruption, vectors of crime, right? So I think that there's this kind of moment in which that that fear or that narrative around around those those folks turns into this idea in which that kind of doubles down then, right, within the context of this broader plague so that now the the population in Rikers is both inherently criminogenic right and epidemiological in that sense and also epidemiological in the sense that they're the infection rates there are so high and so the the logical and the only humanitarian um, move, which would be to massively decarcerate Rikers, becomes impossible because you have this kind of like doubly articulated, right, sense of crime and disease, right, that's now bound up in these folks. And, you know, I think the other side of that is that, you know, the, the corrections union is obviously really powerful in New York City and, and has been, you know, arguing for a while through this that that they should not be forced to be in contact with so many people who are sick all the time. But I think that there's this sort of what you kind of see, right, in the context of uh, how these narratives are unfolding is that they're being cast as like the kind of necessary first responders, right, almost like in a as like a version of a healthcare worker, right, a version of a, you know, a, a somebody whose job it is to maintain the public health, right? Um, and that kind of creates this, that reinforces, I think, the sense of the impossibility of ever, right, releasing uh, folks who are who are jailed in Rikers for whatever reason, if that makes, you know. Um, and so with contact tracing and all that, right, I mean, the idea that's that's happening in terms of the, the, concerns around contact tracing and release, right, sound a lot like they're a lot pretty similar, right, to the the kind of parole and probationary technologies and logics that had been getting rolled out as the um as the only possible way to conceive of decarceration, even though I think that the, you know, that putting somebody 
under digital surveillance 24-7 is just a mode of, you know, is an iteration of, of incarceration, right, rather than a, an actual decarceration, because it's still predicated on arresting the, the movement and capacities and, you know, life decisions, right, of folks who are, um, who are forced to, to be under that kind of surveillance. Khadija, I think also to your point of like, like, what are these people in power doing when they know that like the prisons and the people who work in the prisons are in our spaces, but they're not really in our spaces, right? Like most corrections officers are, are black and Latino and like they're going back to those neighborhoods. New York City is incredibly segregated, right? Like we all know this. And like this kind of fits into the the whole like situation with, with Amy Cooper, right? Like his crime was like being in what Amy Cooper considered to be a white space, right? Like they don't they don't care because they don't have to, right? Like we aren't actually co-located spatially. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I was just I, I was uh, sorry, Josh. I mean, I was just I mean the when I think about that question, I'm always thinking about Singapore. And how they declared that they flattened the curve and then they were like, oh, no, as transmission started to creep up because of the undocumented, I think mostly from the Philippines laborers that they had doubled up in these kind of houses. And so they just actually didn't account for these people who maybe weren't kind of co-located in the same neighborhood yet because of their role in labor were disseminating and transmitting the disease while navigating the rest of the cities. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and in terms of like the segregation around like corrections offices, I mean, that's obviously all true. But I think that, you know, there that's obviously true in that they're not co-located with like the power brokers who are running the city. And, you know, um, but there's also something there's something, too, about the way in which like the narrative around, you know, correctional correctional workers but also, you know, like cops too, right? Cops are, the police are like one of the, the NYPD is one of the biggest vectors, right? For the transmission of coronavirus, right? But that gets kind of, um, that gets written out of the the official narratives and logics of like why you would use the police and what the police are for in the context of managing, you know, managing populations in, in a crisis, right? At which point the, the police become in, I think, at least through this crisis in New York City, the police became this almost disembodied force, right, of producing social distancing, producing mask wearing, whatever, that never, it never reflected any actual possibility of transmission, right, in spite of the fact that that was happening all the time. Um, so the idea that, you know, you would arrest people and throw them in jail for like, you know, not having a mask on or being too close to one another, right, for almost everybody that i know of right who heard about that the first the first reaction is like that makes no sense at all right why would you throw all these people together and i think the only way that that makes sense right is if if at the level of a kind of administrative governance right you you imagine a way right or you you imagine a way the fact of like human transmission and human proximity Right in your kind of justifications for what you're for what you're pursuing, and part of that has to do with dehumanization, right? The fact that people who are uh, jailed are considered basically non-human, um, but part of that too, I think, has to do with the way in which the kind of institution stands comes to stand in for actual people who make the institution work, right? 
um, which is, you know, not for nothing, also the entire point of like predictive policing systems and digital surveillance systems in general, right, is to kind of write out humans from the, the project of managing, governing and punishing other humans. Uh, thank you. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's worth noting, I mean, part of the problem with of understanding rates of infection of COVID-19 in Rikers is that the data that we're relying on, A, comes from the Department of Corrections. Um, the correctional officers have a higher rate of positive confirmation of a diagnosis of COVID-19. But I was speaking to an organizer from Free Them All for Public Health, uh, doing a lot of work around Rikers, and they were saying, it's the people who are actually incarcerated who have five times the rate of death, even if they have um, a less documented rate of confirmed diagnosis. Um, but kind of transitioning to a different point, I'm curious, there's different temporal markers in your essay, and one of which is you open up with um, this commentary about Sean King and looking at the way he frames this garbage in, garbage out uh, rejection of predictive policing, saying, well, there's this history of racist policing and, you know, the data is polluted. So therefore, it's just going to reproduce those same inequities. And I'm just curious, as um, kind of coming from a media department, what are you thinking about the role of citizen journalism now? Kind of Sean King as embodying kind of the promises and the disappointments of that and just thinking about last night and the protests in Minnesota around George Floyd um, and what it means both that people are collectively occupying space, demanding justice for George Floyd, um, and then having tear gas thrown at them in the midst of a public health crisis where there's an aerosolized infection. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I think I, my, I think that citizen journalism is and has always been extremely important. And I don't, I don't really, there's a lot of like, gatekeepers, I think, who, who try to discredit it in ways that I think is, you know, basically untenable. And I think, you know, in terms of what's going on in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, I mean, you know, that one of the things that I was thinking about while I was writing that piece, and I think about all the time, right, is in the in context in which, you know, what the police exist to maintain social order, right? And social order essentially means the maintenance of already existing inequalities um, and the insurance that those or the, the, the violent protection of those inequalities to ensure that they're, they're not contested. Um, and so for, you know, the police, right, central to that mission, right, is doing violence to and killing, right, people, those who are most um, exploited and oppressed by the given social order. And given that mission, then the, the use of tear gas, right, in the context of like an aerosolized, you know, virus is not particularly surprising because when you look across police reactions to, you know, con, you know, contesting their rule, right, contesting their, their power, and also, you know, crucially, I think, contesting their authority, right? Like the, the, one of the fundamental, one of the fundamental ways, I think, in which police departments 
um, work to reproduce order is by insisting, claiming and insisting that they have a narrative on truth, right? They are, they are capable that it is their role to produce that which is true. And that that has to go basically unquestioned in order for the rest of the mission that falls out from that, right, to be successful. And so it is in moments when that basic claim on truth-making or reality-making is questioned that you see the, the in, to my mind, some of the most intense departmental, you know, violent reactions against, against that, that contest, right? Um, so, yeah, citizen journalism is crucial because what citizen journalism does, you know, in spite of the fact, you know, like, we could talk about Sean King, I guess, but, and, you know, citizen journalism has, yes, there's a lot of shortcomings and downsides, I suppose, you know, but on the other hand, citizen journalism is crucial to, in my mind, constantly be kind of by, by shredding um, police agencies and governments that, that endow them with this, their claim to be truth makers, to be reality producers. Um, and so that's, I think, what you're seeing again in, in Minneapolis, right? Like um, the rage, the rage at, at George Floyd's murder and coupled with the police department's rage at their loss of control over the narrative of that which is true, right? And you can actually, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about how like policing how police media like digital media has has grown over the last couple decades is that you can actually go back to this meeting i think it was 1992 or something no in the 90s there was this meeting between a bunch of police leaders you know people like bill bratton um was there and a lot of like leading criminologists and uh you know the guys that wrote uh, broken windows were there and and there was this meeting called Measuring What Matters. And what the thrust of the meeting was about was figuring out how to produce a narrative about, you know, what a city actually is um, that police would drive. So they, the entire meeting was spent largely talking about how it was crucial for police to start producing their own, not only their own, like, written narratives about cases of, you know, violence or encounters or whatever, but to start generating their own numbers. And that those numbers had to be faster than criminologists could put out. They had to be more intuitive and they had to be based on, they had to be categorized and classified by police agencies themselves. So you start getting, you know, and that, that's an outgrowth too of like logics of broken windows policing, right? In which, which is essentially, you know, telling police officers, go after people who are doing things that you don't like. Um, and, and so you had this moment, right, where there's actually a very deliberate move to produce this kind of for, for police officers and police leaders and in con, you know, in government, in conversation with government and criminologists to say like, no, from now on, like one of our fundamental missions is producing reality is producing the truth of the social world. And it's, the, the kind of moments at which that authority is contested, right, that I think you see these really, um, you see police departments losing it, 
right? Um, because if they don't have that power, right, if they don't have the authority to produce narratives of truth, right, then a lot of what the violence of their mission is predicated on logically falls apart, which is one of the reasons also that I think, you know, when, when a lot of the, a lot of the discussion around transparency, um, when it was happening in the mid 2010s, you know, was kind of missing, you know, calling for more and more transparency from the police departments was in some sense missing that that was kind of what police departments wanted to do anyway. They wanted to craft what that transparency meant, but they, the goal of so much of the like digital media that was adopted was precisely to produce a, you know, a quote unquote transparency that just reinforced, you know, departmental narratives about, you know, what it meant, what it means to, to maintain order in a, in a society. So, you know, and when that comes into crisis, right, you have moments where, like what happens in Minneapolis, right, where police are willing to do incredible violence, right, in the con in violence that is amplified by the fact that, you know, there's an aerosolized vi um, virus that particularly impacts people who with, you know, who have had lung trauma, right, and you have people, police tear gassing entire crowds, right, to produce like excess lung trauma. So, you know, this kind of like the, the kind of zone of premature death in which that operates, right, it kind of folds back, that folds back on the production of the zone of premature death that police narratives through numbers and math and, and statistics, what they call statistics, right, makes possible in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that resonates with me. I, just hearing, hearing you talk and also rereading the essay made me think of uh, Ingrid Burrington's uh, piece in Urban Omnibus, Policing is an Information Business, about Bratton's um, kind of creation of the future vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, uh, I was a CompStat. I wanted to say Compass, but CompStat. Um, mm -hmm. And thinking about Sean King, I mean, there's so many things to be say about Sean King. I mean, my, my, my little like ideological grudge with him, um, and I know that people have a series of opinions, is just, I don't know if you remember, but last year, somebody called the New York City Administration of Children's Services on him in retaliation for some kind of statement that he made. And I just remember the level of shock that he had about the way in which child welfare investigations are conducted in New York City in that there's no, you know, right to have an attorney appointed to you. There's no, there's an allegation, but in order to have that allegation substantiated or unsubstantiated, um, your kind of integrity is investigated, not the allegation itself. And I just remember feeling like how are you so surprised when you spoke to all these grieving mothers in neighborhoods where, um, the infiltration of ACS is even more so than the police and the way in which like we're willing to, a platform is provided for black death, but often not kind of all these in-between spaces and the ways in which people are separated and monitored and surveilled. Um, but we could have a whole episode on Sean King. I guess I'm curious kind of around the question of citizen journalism. There's been a discussion, particularly on black Twitter on are these videos and images of people being brutalized and murdered by the police kind of akin to sharing mementos of the lynchings? You know, what what do we do in order to kind of interrogate and hold accountable the police without using this discourse of transparency? Is it enough to document it? Um, is the point that we should be working hand in hand with like a, a movement that's going to take over the streets? Kind of how, how are you thinking about that? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. So I think that the first, the question about like the constant sharing of police brutality being akin to, you know, lynching mementos that, you know, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I remember uh, it was, I remember I actually like, you know, I quit Facebook and like most of my social media, not long after this, but you know, that people I knew, you know, kind of like, it became the the performative liberalism, right? Of like sharing videos of anti-black and anti-brown violence and death, either at the, you know, hands of police or of, you know, white civil society that has been, you know, uh, deputized by police agencies, right? Um, in the case of like Ahmaud Arbery, right? Um, that, yeah, that there is a lot of, that too is a, is an incredibly, you know, is an incredibly violent act. And it's an act that's predicated on this idea to get to your question about like, well, what do you do? Right. It's an idea. It's an, it's predicated on the idea that like, you know, that the consciousness and awareness raising among those who have the privilege to be shocked by such violence, right, is really what is crucial in order to change existing systems of violence and oppression. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't see that really happening in that. I think that what there, there are people who do not know, right, the way in which um, police agencies in particular, but as you say, like in a continuum with and in alliance with all kinds of other agencies that are about managing sociality um, and about, you know, policing, right, uh, lives of, you know, the poor people, people of color, right, women, um, mothers, right? I mean, like that the people who are in the privileged position to not know right, are also not going to be the people that are going to be, that we, sh that should be leading any kind of movement to overthrow these systems of violence and injustice in the first place, and also are not going to be even worth, even if it were true that they should be, right, they're, those groups of basically comfortable, you know, largely white folks, right, are not going to be in the front lines anyway. They're not going to get radicalized and lead a movement to overthrow these kinds of systems of violence. And so I think that, you know, in that kind of context, the way in which citizen journalism circulates, especially online, right, does re reproduce, right, exactly the kinds of violence that it claims to be against. You know, and then, but in terms of like, what is, you know, the what is to be done question, you know, I think that there are, number one, I'm, I'm not the person to talk to about this, because I'm not, I'm not an organizer, really, you know, I'm happy to, you know, I'll go out when there's a call, but I'm not an organizer. And there's so many organizations around the country that are organizing, but I think that any kind of um, movement, right, or any kind of like effort to hold um police agency, police, I should, policing agencies, right, that are not just the police, accountable, um, has to be a movement to overthrow the power that they are endowed with. And that's got to go beyond just transparency. Um, you know, 
there was a if you look at the numbers right in turn like things have not improved over the last five six years right since uh the height of black lives matter protests and the height of calls for police transparency in terms of by most metrics right in terms of surveillance in terms of inequality in terms of violence i mean like and and that's not entirely due to the fact that police are still not transparent right it, it's to do with the fact that that's the mission right of policing it's it's a necessarily violent uh surveillance and punish surveilling and punishing mission right in order to maintain what is otherwise an untenable you know social uh, social order, right, of hyper-exploitation and violence. And, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of the bottom line um, in those discussions. And, you know, the, because the other thing is that I, I am always, uh, I always point to the fact that for every single instance, right, of, you know, a, a terrible, moment of police violence right the response is always like well you know there are millions and millions of police interactions with people every day and like only like a few of them end up violent or end up online like this right so they're not representative though of course like that's not really true either because the millions and millions of interactions between police and communities that are policed that happen every day are largely violent even if they are not resulting in like physical violence right harassment uh, making people uncomfortable, making people like scared to be in their own communities. I mean, that's a form of violence as well. And so that can't be fought with claims for transparency, that kind of ubiquity of the power to surveil, judge and punish, right, is not going to be countered by police, you know, releasing better numbers, right? It's, it's got to be a more comprehensive um, contest than that. Um, and I think that one of the things to get back to thinking a little bit about like digital surveillance technology and all this, one of the things that, you know, a lot of the digital surveillance tech that gets rolled out in communities is actually designed to further that one might argue is, is in the service of transparency. So I'm thinking here, particularly of like shot spotter technologies, right. Which are, um, you know, shot spotter technologies, they're basically microphones that are set up throughout a city and they pick up, they pick up what they think are gunshots. They triangulate them, they put it on a map. So cops respond to gunshots, um, without those gunshots needing to be called in. Right. And the idea behind that, that shot spotter puts out is that, you know, I think only like 20% of, uh, 20% of like gun violence incidents are actually reported to police. So what this does is it kind of short circuits the, the community asking for police help, right? And just allows police to go in and help without, you know, without a call from the community. But of course, what that is, is it's a short circuiting of the relationship between a community and the police, right? There's all kinds of good reasons why communities may not want to call police in. And so you have here then that as a kind of digital math washing or like tech washing or whatever you want to call it of what is an actual of, of the dynamic in which police are reinforcing their authority, their power as occupational forces, right, rather than as, you know, like citizens response forces, right, um, that taking unto themselves the 
the power and authority and capacity to act on a community, right, without acting with a community. Um, and that's, you know, rooted, of course, in the assumptions of violence, you know, and the violence work that's, that's in, integral to that, to, uh, to policing. So, and I think that, you know, that kind of fits right back in with these sorts of questions of like the, ubiqu- the, the authority to ubiquitously um, make decisions over what lives are livable and under what conditions, right? That folds back in on these other dynamics, right, around policing um, that are certainly once again being, you know, really highlighted and, and shown clearly in the case of Minneapolis. So thinking um, uh, a bit about Minneapolis, what's happening, especially with the protesters and digital surveillance technologies, you're seeing that they're taking screenshots of as many rioters and protesters as they can and trying to um, kind of uh, trace those people and um, arrest them. Uh, The National Guard is being called in. Um, And still thinking about uh, citizen journalism, kind of trying to tie all these ideas together you're seeing uh these videos of these protesters but even though you have very clear footage of um, white protesters from protesting kind of these coronavirus restrictions there's clearly a strong differentiation in the way that these technologies are being implemented and it speaks to a lot of what you're saying um and what you write about but i just want to hear a bit of uh, your take uh, on that difference beyond just the black and white difference in the way that um, these rioters are going to be approached and the way that these police officers are uh, creating this social truth and enforcing this social truth. Um, beyond how they're doing that? Um, I mean, well, yeah, you know, the, the first thing, you know, everybody knows, right? Whiteness is an incredibly powerful armor, right? Especially when you're, when you're talking about agencies like policing, but, um, you know, in general, like living in a, if you live in a society that's organized around the innocence of whiteness, right? And the inherent, like, beneficence of whiteness, right? As, as historically insane as that is, right? Then whiteness is assumed to be less dangerous and is assumed to be you know, less epidemiological, right, or less, you know, virulent, right, than, um, than, than any other kind of racialized group, right, but particularly Black folks. And so, you know, part of it is that, part of the idea, I think, you know, is that in the, in the entire narrative around, like, I think part of what explains beyond just like a pat answer of like, well, it's obviously that the cops are racist, right? But in terms of like thinking about the technical, un, you know, imaginary for for that difference in, in tracing and surveillance and, and the idea that um, that networks themselves, right, human networks are dangerous, is is this imaginary that um th- that the likelihood of sustained disorder um that is is much is is thought to be much greater and much more you know virulent right 
has a higher R naught amongst um, you know people of color than amongst white people because I think one of the things that I found in research that I haven't published yet, but is that you know behind a lot of these kind of technical rollouts, right? Of like, well, yeah, they're going to basically do like contact tracing for, you know, protesters in order to arrest like everybody's, you know, networks or, or at least to harass them. But part of what underwrites that is in a lot of the literature that comes out of like police spaces and police thinkers, right? That, that kind of, that white folks, uh, disorder and unruliness is understandable and legible and is it kind is transparent right whereas for people of color the assumption is that there is some sort of like ontological like difference right in which the disorder and violence right that people of color are capable of is considered to be unknowable Right. And because of its unknowability, um, it has to be represented, imagined, right, in order to be uh, represented, imagined, created, right, in order to be kept under control. Um, And, you know, you see this, you see this over and over, but like in one of the most kind of spectacular instances that I found of this is, you know, Bill Bratton wrote a memoir in 1997, which I don't. If you haven't read it, then you should continue to not read it, right? But but he's he talks about a lot of the memoir is really like this kind of long form like defensive um broken windows policing, but also especially of his obsession with numbers and metrics, right? And he's got this chapter, or maybe it's a few chapters, I don't know. It's not exactly a memorable book, but whatever. So where he's talking about his upcoming as a police officer in Boston, right? And he's he's talks at length you know kind of does the the you know expected roundup of all the different types of like depravities and like you know uh basically like a racist like um log line of like all the different kind of police imagine police like violences and dehumanization of like black people living in black neighborhoods right but the most violent moment in the entire book is actually and and sorry, and I should say, so like, so that kind of the the unimaginable cruelty that he sees in these black communities, blah, 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 is what leads him to believe that um, actually you just have to, you know, you've got to do broken windows and it's got to be math driven because there's no account. You can't understand these people, right? This is, you know, is what Bratton is saying. But the most violent moment in the book is actually a busing riot, right? And it's the white, it's the white Irish Catholic communities in South Boston right, that are erupt in this, like, horrifying, racist, segregationist, like, battle, right, that goes on for, like, several days, I think, like, against the cops. But that violence is kind of ignored because it's explained away, right? And he says something like, well, you know, I understood why they did it. And, like, they had to go home and, like, you know, you know, the cops had to go home and tell their parents, like, why they arrested, like, Johnny from down the street. And it's like, that's this kind of moment in which, like, you can see the emergence of the, like, tracing the networks, right? Because the violence, even though that it is white people that are capable of the most horrendous violence and the most sustained violence, right, in his telling of, like, the, the development of this system of logic, right, 
their violence is explicable and also therefore is considered to be, you know, aberrant, right? Aberrational. And therefore not something you have to pay that close attention to. It's situational, it'll go away, whatever, right? Whereas the violence that he sees and I think largely imagines, right, happening in families and communities of color, right, is to him inconceivable in some basic way and therefore needs to be mathematized, right? Needs to be made to, made into statistics, needs to be turned, you know, you have to turn it on prediction, right? You've got to develop all these series of techniques to produce the world, right, in which you can predict and police what is otherwise an inexplicable, like, uh, form of life, right? Um, and so I think that's part of what you see too, right? And the rollout of these, you know, once again, rollout of surveillance um, and network tracing and also the desire amongst police to destroy sociality, social networks, right? Of people who are conceived of or imagined of as being, you know, always already a threat to, to order. Um, just scrolling back for a second to what you were talking about, shot spotter technologies, it made me think of Chicago's, um, what do they call it? The heat map, the strategic subjects list, right, um, yeah. which I love in the same way that I love the idea that Bratton has a memoir. Um, yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting about that, that there's so many things that are fascinating to me, not to mention like, how do you predict gun violence and not include like the manufacturers of guns? Of, um, yes. yeah. But I think something interesting to point out in that particular model is that when they predicted that somebody would be at high risk of committing or being a victim of gun violence, they sent a police officer with a social worker. Um, And part of it was the idea that we care for these people. And you draw heavily on Christina Sharp and this idea of the weather and the wake of um, black violence and uh, anti-black violence and slavery. Um, And it just, it just, I'm really curious about this question of how care kind of comes together with the violence that is enacted among black people. Um, and then just scrolling back to the Amy Cooper question, a part of me living in New York city, it's just a different kind of racism than the MAGA war of Northern aggression, kind of Confederate flag holding things that we see in the South. And the fact that she came out as a liberal and she just repeatedly said, you know, an African-American male, an African-American male. Um, it just was very cathartic for me in the sense that nobody could hide, you know, behind the idea that it was these other people enacting this kind of violence. Um, and just, you know, part of, I think, what we all liked is I think Stanley, Elon, and I are fairly cynical about the future. And there was just like a real honesty in this contrasting between on one hand, you have Philip K. Dick's Minority Report, which, you know, acknowledges kind of a history of racial violence, but doesn't talk about race yet. There's like Japanese people in internment camps, but versus Spielberg's, which refuses to address it. And I'm just wondering, you know, this this quest to demand a radically different world, like just even on the level of theory, um, how much of it is still continuing Dr. King's point that like, you know, it's white liberals, not the KKK that are the biggest barrier or how much of it is kind of, how do we develop this new imaginary? Um, So that was so many questions in one, but I guess maybe if we could situate it in kind of your thoughts about time, because you also open up with Agatha, the pre-cogs statement, I'm so tired of the future. 
And then you have kind of Bratton's information science business kind of trying to create a future in the present. Um, and just in this moment where we're all kind of in the uteruses of our houses, unable to leave, um, how are you seeing kind of how are you thinking about time and like the time to being free? Yeah, I mean, yeah, time is, I mean, in a, in a very kind of basic way, thinking about the kind of the tools that are employed to structure and restructure forms of oppression that I look at in that piece and that I look at, you know, in general, they're, they're largely bound up with temporality, right? Um, with the slowing of certain certain unfolding of possibilities and the rapid, um, you know, the, the heightening to like a hyperspeed of others. Um, you know, predictive policing, you know, predictive policing is interesting to me because it doesn't work. And um, it seems pretty obvious that it wasn't going to work. And people seem to know that you know, from the get-go. But um, but one of the things that predictive policing always said, the imaginary that drove, you know, the desire to develop it, right, was that it was going to produce this revolution in the temporality of enforcement in which the future never happens, right? The The moment of, the moment of the, like, criminal act right never occurs it's foreclosed um and that's great because that means that then you get to save time right on all of these other you know expenses like lawyers and trials and jailing people and whatever and that the the method through which you know and i know i talk about this a lot in this piece right and the method through which that that never happening never occurring is going to happen is also through these like very precise dosage temporal dosages of presence in different spaces right um so i i don't i don't actually remember how deep i go into it or how much i ended up cutting but you know they're like the 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 tech i talk about in there right which is now actually owned by shot spotter it's called shot spotter missions now i think which you know is interesting um the tech i talk about in there is like it's like send police officers with like this equipment predisposed to this, you know, possible interaction for like X number of minutes to the, you know what I mean? Like the super defined kind of temporality, which is then imagined to unfolding from there, produce these, these timelines of like, you know, of the encounter never actually happening, right. The, an eventless world um, from the eyes of policing. And I think that, that is kind of the great hope of so much digital media, right? Of so much digital technology is the idea that, you know, you can, in predicting the future, right? What you really are doing is you're getting a hold on time and temporality. You're bringing it under some kind of, of sway, um, under control, but that's, you know, maybe that's the wrong word, but, you know, in the context of, of the kind of state power that this, these technologies are, are operating under, right. That desire is also really tightly linked into, you know, unfolding other types of temporal possibilities to like other, 
to to other people, right? So that the you know the intensive hyper policing, right, of communities of color in New York City is 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 done in order to produce the kind of luxuriant time frames available to like the wealthier and whiter people in the city, right? Um, and and to produce the kind of like the worlds in which the the encounter with the other right for for whiteness right or for the kind of white middle classes never has to happen either right so it's this kind of elimination of the encounter um and that i find really fascinating because in its own way and it's like really twisted dystopian way that's a utopian mode of thinking right um we can control the eventualities of the world in order to produce a world that is perfectly suited right for the populations that we want to uh you know that we want to facilitate their enjoyment of the world right their their possibility of moving through it and so i think that then the question of time and the question of temporality is central to any kind of politics or really any kind of political analysis of the the uh, convergence of policing and digital media, but also I think digital media more generally. Um, and then, in, you know, in terms of how that's kind of unfolding in this moment um, where we're all, you know, where those of us who are lucky enough to be stuck in our houses are stuck in our houses and time kind of fluxing, you know, I think that in some way, right, like the experience of temporality in the middle of COVID, right, is is bizarre not only because the kind of daily routines that we've used to to kind of structure our lives and make sense of the structure of our lives sort of dissipate but also that you know it's you've got this this intensity of unpredictability right which has which goes against the kind of entire conjured um unconsciously maybe conjured kind of world of living with digital media in which like predictability is actually the point. Um, so that, you know, there's no, you know, having a ring camera on your, on your, uh, doorbell is not going to necessarily do anything about whether or not somebody, you know, comes near you in the grocery store or whatever. And it's, you know what I mean? So like, so there's this kind of unfolding of this, you know, that, time seems to be extending because we're at home or whatever, if we're lucky, we're at home and, and time seems to be passing differently, but time is also now totally outside of our control and the kind of violence of time, right. Has, has broken up, right. This sort of structure of feeling that we had really come to rely on those, those who had come to rely on digital media as a sort of like conduit to the world. Right. Um, and has produced a kind of, I think, you know, you see it over and over in the kind of like op-eds written by folks that, you know, for the New York Times or whatever, people who feel like this kind of constant, you know, sense of anxiety, even though they're stuck in their homes, right? I think a lot of it has to do with the kind of way in which like the, the kind of assumption of temporality is as logical or flowing from, you know, a controllable point to another completely, right, gets punctured. Um, and that is to also say that that kind of puncturing of temporality, right, or the capacity to puncture temporality and to scramble temporality is one of the key tools that governments use police to do in order to maintain control of communities that, or their idea of control of communities that they understand to be dangerous, right? So that, 
this there's this kind of doubling right where the anxieties and i'm by no means i don't think i'm you know this is not my idea right i'm just kind of reiterating what i've what i've heard a lot of other folks talking about right is that a lot of the anxieties that are now endemic in the kind of the the middle classes um as part of the pandemic are actually those same anxieties that are designed to that are designed to produce outcomes that that are designed by government and government's allies, governance, right? Allies and governance, right? To produce exactly those those kinds of disjunctures and impossibilities of temporality in communities that that are occupied by police and policing agencies. Um, so that's kind of how I'm thinking about it, you know, right now. Uh, and you know, to go back to like the shot spotter question, right? That's what shot spotter is supposed to do, right? Like nobody calls the cops and the cops show up anyway. And like, you don't know when you don't, you know, so like, it's, it's the kind of the, the lack of control over time and temporality, I think is central to the dynamics of, um, of occupation, right. That, that digital media produces in police and uh, produces for police. And that then kind of forecloses the imaginations of what is possible for those of, for those who want to imagine the world otherwise. Um, and so I think that, you know, in the moment now, you, I've been noticing like these calls to imagine a world otherwise in, in ways that seems to flux, right? Sometimes they're, they're more intense and sometimes they're not, but that certainly seems like, you know, that there is some, some traction that seems to be there in the context of, you know, collapse, right. For really forcefully starting to to demand different ways of imagining our our what lives can and should look like and what worlds can be built. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, we prepare, you know, neatly written questions before this, but in the moment, you know, I think just in response to whoever we're speaking to, we kind of ramble and it provokes all these different thoughts. So I appreciate your generosity of kind of going, going with us uh, in all these different directions. Um, yeah, so our, yeah, thank you. This was, this was great. And I would love to see a conversation kind of between you and Ali Winston. That would be, that would be interesting too. Um, so our tradition at the end of the show is to kind of share any recommendations for our listeners about something you're reading or you're watching or you're enjoying. It can be on topic or off. Um, is there anything that's kind of staying with you now that you want to recommend? Yeah, well, actually, I mean, this is, this is sort of off I mean, it is off topic, but I don't know. It seems also kind of on topic. I've been, I just finished reading this book called The Common Wind by Julius Scott. And it's, it was written in the 80s. And it's this fantastic history of how, so it's a, it's a history of like the, the prehistory of the Haitian Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, and then just, you know, the, the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution. But what it's a history of is how people communicated right? How news traveled, how folks communicated. Um, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the white landers. I'm talking about people who are enslaved, free people of color, folks that were resisting, um, about how they communicated and how they were able to produce life worlds and worlds of meaning, right? Outside of, um, that were totally obviously revolutionary and opposed to existing structures of oppression, but that also created these worlds that were 
completely incomprehensible, right, for, for those that were fighting for the maintenance of, of French imperial slavery. Um, and I, it's a fascinating book and I, I haven't been able to get it out of my head. So that's, that's maybe something that I would suggest that I've, I've been into lately, The Common Wind. Dope. Elon? So recently a massive crow has made a nest somewhere near my apartment. And I like to work with my window open and there's just like this massive cawing sound all the time. Um, and so I started, I started reading about crows and like crows are fascinating animals. And there's a great, there's a great article from 2017 called the secret life of urban crows. They, you know, like they remember the faces of people who have wronged them and like teach it to their children. Crows are fascinating creatures. And like, I've gone down this rabbit hole this past week. Wow. Stanley, you're up. Yeah. Uh, so recently I've been reading this collection of texts from Black gay authors and poets called Brother to Brother. Uh, and it's an amazing collection of texts. But one of the authors or a filmmaker that is interviewed is called Marlon Riggs. And he um, created um, a movie called Tongues Untied that I'm actually going to be watching later today. And there's another movie, I think, by Isaac Julian called Looking for Langston. Uh, that's another amazing movie I've heard about uh, the Harlem Renaissance and how queer bodies existed at the time. And it's interesting seeing the history, how the Hugh- the Langston Hughes estate didn't want certain poems uh, of Hughes to be included in the movie because it alluded to his sexuality. And so uh, this filmmaker had to create two different versions, one for the U.S. and one for uh, everybody else. Um, so that's those are two movies I'm watching soon and uh, a book that I'm reading. Tongues Untied is beautiful. This one. Well, I'm going to come in with the lowbrow recommendation. So I've been binge watching Money Heist on Netflix, which is actually a Spanish language. So the original name is like <laughs> La Casa de Papeles. And I've just been thinking about how horror movies are often wrestling with our racial anxieties. Um both in the sense that black people is diverse in the traditional ones and now kind of how Jordan Peele is playing around with it. And robbery movies seem to be like parables of like going against the state and you better accept your <laughs> lot in life. Um, but it's very cathartic, at least by the second season. Um, they seem to be successful, although that remains to be seen. Spoiler alert. Um but yeah, I have I've the reading has gone down relative to COVID. Well, especially because no childcare and during a pandemic. So I've been more binge watching. Uh, but thank you. That's it. This is We Be Imagining with Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, Stanley Munoz, Ilan Mandel. And thank you so much again, Josh, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This was really great. It's an honor to be here. Um, oh, and I also, I'm, I'm terrible at promotion, so I'm supposed to say, listen, rate, review the podcast on Apple, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, where all major podcast platforms are found. And please write us. We want to hear from you at webeimagining at gmail.com. That's all, y'all.